Welcome back to Mining Stock Daily with me, Paul Harris. Today we're talking about nickel development in Canada. I have great pleasure to be joined by Mark Jarvis, Chair and CEO, and Lyle Triton, Man- Manager of Development of Giga Metals. Good, good afternoon. Good morning, gentlemen. Good afternoon. It's Mark here. And, uh, nice to be here, Paul. And, and I'll say it is Triton. Triton. Lyle Triton. Yeah. <laughs> We're off to a bad start. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get better from here. Okay, it's turn okay. again. The project's called Turn Again. I've got that right, haven't I? <laughs> you've got that right, yeah. That's okay, well, well, we'll build bit by bit. Now, you've recently put out a pre-feasibility study on the project, and you're contemplating um, an operation to produce 35,000 tonnes per year of nickel in concentrate with 2,000 tonnes per year of uh, cobalt in there as well for about uh, around 30 years. Um, Obviously, completing a PFS, that's a big step. Um, Let's start with, you know, what are you happy with? What are you not happy with? Well, if I can just start with this and then pass it to Lyle. Um, This project is what it always has been, um, which is a very large a low-grade open pitable with an extremely low strip ratio of uh, deposit of nickel and cobalt and sulfides. And what this PFS does is it has taken the description of the project to a much, much more accurate level. And there's also been some significant improvements and de-risking uh, in the PFS. And, and, and the de-risking really... Uh, a large part of that is in the geometallurgical studies that were done. Uh, we now feel that we've got the ability to predict recoveries with very narrow error bars uh, across this deposit uh, from everything from from high grade down to waste rock. Uh, our, 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 our algorithm to predict recoveries has gotten much more uh, accurate. And that, that accuracy is a significant de-risking I mean, the cash flow flows from what are your recoveries block by block. The, you know, every every part of the model flows from that. So um, just, you know, basically, if you're looking at this and, 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 and what I would say to a major company looking at this is, do you believe our geological model? Do you believe our metallurgical recovery algorithm? You believe our capex, you believe our opex, and that's about it. The uh, operating costs flow out of the geological model and the recovery algorithm. Um, so, and then a major, of course, is going to have its own view on you know what 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 price deck are they using for nickel? You know what uh, payabilities do they expect from a smelter? And if there's a pressure oxidation plant, what payabilities would that deliver? And all of that. So, really, it's pretty basic stuff. Um, and I'll pass it to Lyle to answer it more fully. Yeah. So, you know, Mark really hit the nail on the head, Paul. Our our big objective coming into this was de-risking and raising, which involves raising our confidence level. And and we've done that in a number of ways. So, the metallurgical test work that we did was really pretty amazing. Um, it's pretty common with nickel deposits like ours to to have you know an R squared value, you know a correlation coefficient when you're fitting your recoveries to your recovery model in the range of 0.6 or 0.7, and ours is at 0.88, which is extremely good. And as Mark said, it runs all the way from the highest grade ores to the lowest grade that become waste. 
which gives us an excellent understanding for any block in the model. If we know what the block is, and, and this really pertains more to operational than days than PFS days, but it, it's important for both. If you know what the OR is, you know what the recovery is. You're not guessing. You're not sitting there wondering, will it be 25% above or 25% below? There's always some scatter, but you know when you think about you know a 30-year project, you've got a very good degree of confidence in all of the materials that are in the proposed mine pit. Uh, and of particular importance is the recovery algorithm is really good at nailing the recovery at the low end of the model, which you know is where you're deciding is it ore or is it waste. Being accurate at the high end is important, but you know that's ore, right? But when you're down at the low end of recovery, that's where it really makes the difference of is it ore or waste. A couple other things that we that we did in this go around that are important. We took about a ton and a half of our material that we've been saving for a couple of years and put it through a pilot scale high pressure grinding roll at the University of British Columbia. It's a copper unit. I've never been exposed to high pressure grinding rolls before. Uh, I tend to think about more conventional uh, approaches in in the minerals industry. But the technology I know well from my days at Sherritt, we used counter-rotating rolls to make nickel briquettes. These are just counter-rotating rolls that don't have the pockets on them and that end up uh, just crushing the material against itself. And it sucked the, the material through each run, you know, we put through 200 kilograms in about 25 seconds, quiet, dust-free, just an amazing device. And for a hard ore like Turnigan, it's really instrumental. You know, this project is not going to be great with a SAG mill, right? It, our ore is not great for SAG, but it's fantastic for this kind of technology. And it's widely used today. It's just not very much used in the base metals industry. So it still seems like novel technology, but really it's not. So those, those are two really important factors on, on treating the material. Uh, and then we got to a much higher level of detail on the engineering for the process plant and the infrastructure, both on-site and off-site, that led us to conclude that the capital cost is what we thought it was in the PEA. You know, yes, we've seen two years of higher than normal inflation. Uh, our capital cost for the build phase is flat. Uh, 1.9 billion to get to 90,000 tons a day capacity, and that's because we've you know been able to whittle down on the amount of contingency we need to have as we get to the high level of definition on all the components of the process plant. We've now estimated the power line based on actual bills of material for towers and locations of towers and counts and cabling and everything else. The road, but you know how much cut, how much fill, all those little engineering details that take a lot of time to figure out, but that allow you to be a lot more accurate and predictable in your costs. And so we feel really good about having whittled down the risk around the capital cost, the risk around the test work. Our operating cost is up a little bit because we've made some you know, more conservative assumptions around a couple of components, the around the power use and around the steel use. Uh, and, you know, they may well be the right assumptions and that's fine. It, makes our project you know pretty competitive and if we do better than that then we're even better off i should also uh mention that uh, tetra tech went out and actually got quotes on uh, most of the major equipment so um, this is not a factored guess as to capital costs they actually went and got quotes so it's a it's a pretty high level of certainty 
I want to talk about the 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 project economics a little bit later because I think that's going to come into um, part of how the conversation evolves. But let's stick on the technical aspects for the time being. You, you've got the PFS done. Um, you've got the, that, that big flag in the sand. What are the next steps? Um, imagine giving your comments about, you know, you're trying to make the project appealing to a larger company. Um, larger companies tend to want to do feasibility studies themselves because they want their people to do manage, you know, that final document, which they'll make a funding decision on. So um, if, if that's in some ways not on the table for you or not your job to do, what, what are the next steps for Giga Metals? Well, you know, that's a very good question. And, um, you know, it's all about money, right? So we think, and, 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 you know, the PFS is still not, you know, filed. It should be filed three or four weeks. Um, and as far as I know, the part of the PFS that, that gives me some numbers for how do we get to final investment decision? That's a bankable feasibility report through the, you know, through the uh, environmental assessment to getting permits. That's what makes a, you know, permits are what make a, a, a feasibility report bankable. Um, so to get all the way there, we estimate, I'm estimating, without seeing the engineers' numbers yet, uh, 50 million US dollars to get us from here to final investment decision. Um, give me the money today, we could possibly be there in three years. Um, Lyle might say, well, that's a bit aggressive, and it is aggressive, but it's also, I think, possible. Um, the slowest part of the timeline would be the environmental assessment. But apparently the, you know, the Canadian government is committed to speeding up that process for critical minerals um, projects. And in fact, uh, I, I just learned recently they put a billion dollars extra into the part of the government that processes a large project, uh, you know, environmental assessment. So they're staffing up for this as part of their critical mineral strategy. Anyway, so, you know, and I don't want to be half pregnant. I don't want to raise $5 million. And uh, I want to raise $50 million. I don't want to go, go forward. So who does the study depends on who buys the next piece of the project. We're getting into, you know, some some other topics here, Paul, but um, we're not planning to dilute our equity by selling stock. We don't need to. Uh, we're finding enough interest at the project level that we think we can do this at the project level. So if it was a car company, and we're talking to lots of car companies, uh, we prefer a model where they buy in and become uh, you know, a joint venture partner, much as Mitsubishi is a joint venture partner. And if they're the source of the next $50 million, we're then going to staff up and uh, with uh, you know more people who have experience in bringing projects of this size through that process. Um, another way it could go is that uh, a mining company could get involved, and we're talking to mining companies as well. And particularly, there's, uh, there's mining companies that are in copper, and perhaps they've got copper porphyry projects. Um, this project looks a lot like a copper porphyry project. It isn't, obviously, but if you look at our flow sheet, if you look at you know, our processing, it's very similar to a copper porphyry flow sheet. 
except somewhat simpler because we don't have to extract the gold or the molybdenum. We're just getting nickel and cobalt. They come together. 99% of the nickel and cobalt are contained in pentlandite. Um, and so it's just a very simple, uh, you know, float the pentlandite, suppress everything else. That's it. That's all you have to do. That's part of why it's so simple. So if you're a big copper major, um, this project is going to look fairly familiar to you. And if you're interested in getting into the nickel space, uh, this is sort of a natural fit for you. Um, and if it's a major mining company that does step in, I agree with you. You do the feasibility study, right? You do the environmental assessment. You know, pay us some cash for a piece of our project and then earn another piece of the project by taking us to the final investment decision. And it just makes sense to me. It's always struck me as extremely inefficient. Um, the junior does hugely expensive and dilutive work of taking a major project to full feasibility. And then the major comes along and goes, oh yeah, that looks nice, but I don't believe a word of it. So I'm going to do it again. You know, it's, it's, it's just inefficient. So it would be great to, to get a major mining company involved uh, at this stage to do that work. Okay, so it sounds like you're you're looking for you know some kind of partnership or JV partner at, at the project level rather than at the the corporate level. Yes, that's that's okay. true. Now um, let, let's get into some of the economics. Uh, you mentioned Lyle, I think, uh, one point nine billion uh, capex. The post tax IRR internal rate of return at the base case scenario was uh, I think eleven point four percent. Now. Um, at face value, a lot of people would, you know, just offhand say, well, that project's not going anywhere. There's no return there. But given that, you know, nickel and nickel, the demand for nickel for energy, um, energy transition, lithium-ion batteries, are we approaching a, a situation where, let's say, standard economics or standard economic thinking is perhaps going to have to take a backseat to some of these bigger and, and wider aims? And, and maybe we can sort of broaden this out into the, the sort of nickel space in general because there's a, a number – well, there's not that many projects out there, but there's a handful of other junior explorer developers in a similar situation to you. They've got good projects. They've got big ticket prices on them to build them, and their market caps are way too low to even contemplate being able to finance a project going forward. And as you mentioned, Mark, you know your big challenge now is financing, getting to the next step. Um, and fifty million dollars is what roughly about twice your current market cap. So there seems to be a sort of big disconnect there. Um, how, how does that disconnect get traversed? Well, uh, why don't you go ahead with sure. sort of the IRRs and, and, and large, long, like yeah. base metal projects? Yeah, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from, Paul, and there's this paradigm within the resource industry that a resource project needs to look like this or have this kind of a return. And, and our metrics on that, like everybody's different, but, you know, the rules of thumb in the industry are a little bizarre that, you know, we, we credit gold projects differently than base metals projects, for example. Um, and when you think about the risk factors, when you're dealing with, you know, something that's, you know, high grade, but underground and remote versus something that's big and open pit, you get very different risk factors. 
countries matter. So you have to take all of that into consideration when you look at rate of return, and particularly it's about life. And when I talk to government and communities and uh, potential funders and stuff, I, I like to try and, you know, I'll say mess with their thinking a little bit. Don't think of this as a resource project. Think of this as a utility project. All we're doing is providing the minerals required for the energy transition you want to do. And, you know, we're not going to make a 30% rate of return. Like we'll have some great years because nickel is a spiky metal in price. Uh, but we're not going to be a 30% project. Like that's, that's just not there. What we will be is a stable source of production and a stable source that enables the energy transition we're all trying to get on. And when we look at these projects in the light of things like the IRA in the U.S., all the commentary around reshoring and ally shoring and securing uh, supply chains from geopolitical concerns, you know, we think that there's a very strong driver for Western projects, North America, Europe, uh, to be able to supply at least a reasonable fraction of the local demand. You know, I don't think anybody's going to be comfortable in having the entirety of our decarbonization profile being in the hands of a geopolitical uh, rival. So, you know, whatever the global price is, is that the price that is paid for locally produced? Maybe, maybe not. Right. So I, the metrics are a little bit odd, but you can't really think about a big base metals project, nickel, copper, anything else like you think about gold or oil where, you know, the, the the risk factors at play are much, much different, right? These are just big, long-life things that should operate much more like a utility than a traditional high-grade resource kind of play. Okay, that, that makes Let a me, lot of sense to me. And, and there's perhaps, I would argue, more the way that, you know, China sees resource development. It buys things and builds them because it needs it, not necessarily because it's going to make money on, on a mine per se. But um, the, the, obviously... The projects in Canada, your publicly listed company in Canada, um, investors are looking for a return on their investment. They're perhaps looking for a, a premium buyout or, or something of that nature, or you know maybe further online dividends. Um, it seems there's a bit of a, a paradigm shift that's necessary or a paradigm hurdle to overcome. You know, um, you make an interesting point about China Incorporated because you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what China has done in the critical mineral space as much like what Amazon did. Go for market share and worry about profits later. And both Amazon and China have done that very well, um, which is which is odd. I'm not used to thinking of government-run companies as, as being particularly smart. But uh, in China's case, in this particular area, certainly not in all areas, they've proven to be quite smart. Somebody smart is in there directing traffic. Um, you know, let me also point out that our, our base case price, 975 a pound nickel, is 19% below the 20-year average price of nickel in 2023 dollars. And I think using, if you're going to analyze historic prices, you have to use current dollars. I mean, anything else is just simply misleading. And, uh, you know, I mean, does anybody think that nickel won't revert to the mean um, or or more? Uh, you know, something else is, as Lyle mentioned, that nickel's spiky. It seems like about every 20 years or so, 
it goes crazy. And I mean, during the last spike was when Ballet had just bought Inco. And I think the purchase paid for itself in less than 18 months. You know, so they basically owned the legacy assets of Inco for free because they had a very nice timing with the spike that they got. And we're, you know, my question right now is, can we get this thing built before the next spike? You don't want to be building it during a spike. You want to build it in a perfect world just before it. So, you know, the other thing I want to, the other point I want to make is that this, like the PEA, is a very conservative document. You have to bear in mind, when we put out the PEA, which was, you know, a Lyle's creation also, uh, we put it out with a negative depreciated net present value at the base case price. At that point, it was seven fifty a pound for nickel. And we got hammered by the market. We got punished. But we then got Mitsubishi as a partner because they brought in a very conservative outside engineering firm that went through our, our PEA and they said, all of the assumptions in this document are reasonable. So in other words, we came up with something that sophisticated investors believe. There are all sorts of games you can play with an engineering document. We're playing none of them. Uh, Lyle wouldn't because it's in his nature. Uh, sometimes I think, unfortunately, but you know, as a promoter, I'd love to see a little more pizzazz. Um, but instead, we're going for credibility. And so the strategics that we're talking to let me just step back a little bit further. So, so first of all, Mitsubishi brought in a very conservative outside engineering firm to, to help them do due diligence. They said that the PEA was reasonable. We ended up getting Mitsubishi in as a partner, and they wanted to advance it to the PFS level. They kept that same engineering firm involved. We had monthly meetings with them through the whole process. So, so we've got a conservative engineering firm, Tetratech, We've got another conservative engineering firm kind of watching over their shoulders, and we've got a very conservative Lyle Tritton putting all this together. So, you know, at this point, with the market broken, in my view, and with absolutely no value, I think, to our public listing, I'm much more interested in the impression that we make on the strategic market than I am on the retail and even the institutional market. I don't, you know, there's, there's, there's very few institutional players that I think really understand nickel. They might understand gold. They might understand copper. There's a couple of people that understand nickel, but they're very few. So, you know, they'll just look at the IRR and go, oh, this is a waste of time. And they'll move on. But the ones that understand nickel won't do that. Okay, well, let, let me approach this from a different point of view. You, you both sort of touched on this. Um, you know, you, you talked about the US, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. Canada is getting in on the act as well. You mentioned that Canada's looking to um, speed up permitting times. And the Canadian government also seems to be getting very much behind the development of, how should we say, battery metals or battery minerals infrastructure. Um, there's been a lot of focus recently on Quebec and, and Beckencore. That's going to become a, a battery minerals hub. Um, they're looking at, I think, cathode production or anode production there as well. Um, what, what about in British Columbia? How much of that battery minerals love is falling on British Columbia? Um, I'll just briefly say something here. Uh, Mitsubishi is thinking big. So, you know, if you wanted a battery metals supply chain in British Columbia, you know, you wouldn't be selling it to a smelter, although you could smelt it. 
um, that is one route that, that, that you can use to get to the cathode. You can take the mat and, 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 and process it hydrometallurgically into anything you want, really. Um, but another route is to take uh, our concentrate and put it through a pressure oxidation circuit, a form of hydrometallurgy that Lyle uh, knows an extreme, extreme amount about. Um, and then you can, you know, so refine it to MHP or sulfate or anything you want again. And then you can pass it on to the PCAM and then the CAM makers. So uh, Mitsubishi doesn't do any refining, but they have friends that do. And they don't do PCAM and CAM, but they've got friends that do. They've got other companies that they work very well with. And they're thinking in terms of a whole supply chain right in British Columbia, supplied by Turnigan uh, to eventually produce battery materials directly. And, uh, you know, it's very ambitious. It's very early stage. It's just all talk right now. But that's the way they're thinking. They're thinking about BC being, uh, you know, a place to take it all the way. Um, and it's very interesting, of course, also what's happening in, in, in Quebec. We, we could provide some excellent feedstock for what's happening there as well. Okay. To, to what extent will, do you think or are you seeing that there's either going to be Canadian federal government money available to help you get to, you know, the work towards a feasibility or an investment decision um, or even funding from the U.S.? Yeah. So, you know, there's a few different avenues for that, Paul. Um, certainly the Canadian government has announced some very supportive regulations uh, and measures around uh, critical minerals. We've built into the PFS, the Clean Technology Manufacturing Refundable Investment Tax Credit that they've announced that, you know, it's a big help. There's no question. Uh, and, you know, they've done that because they and the United States and Europe now have realized that these are the kinds of things that they have to do if they want to maintain control of their supply chains. Uh, you know, so, you know, that's already being promoted and, and brought forward. We're still waiting on the, on the final regulations. Um, but there, you can, you've also seen how active Quebec and Canada have been in matching IRA type activities for the, um, battery plants and things like that in Quebec and Ontario. And so, you know, is this the be all and end all? Maybe, maybe there's more hard to say. Um, you know, we've had certainly discussions within BC with the federal government, um, you know, with NRCAN, with other agencies, about what parts of the project they're most interested in, how they might support us, and those will ramp up as we, as I finish filing the PFS. Right, still got to get that into CDAR. And also, we've you know had a number of discussions in the U.S. where we've been asked in the past to apply for funding from the DPA and DOE uh, because they're interested in supporting projects like ours. Doesn't mean they will, of course, but, you know, we'll be, you know, they're interested in them at the feasibility study level, not before. So the discussions were courteous and we'll get back to you when we've done the PFS. And, and that's now coming up on us to, you know, it's on my whiteboard amongst things to do is to get back to the, to the government agencies and say, okay, we're now ready for that next stage. And another thing is that the federal government in Canada has got a $1.5 billion fund that's uh, designed to invest in 
infrastructure to support critical minerals projects. And as the minister said, um, I just came back from a trade delegation with the Minister of Natural Resources to London and Paris. Um, and what he said in a speech there is wires and roads. Well, we certainly got uh, something suitable for that to develop a nickel and cobalt deposit. I think uh, I think in the PFS offsite infrastructure is 170 million U.S. dollars. In the directs before indirects and contingency, yes, it's about 10 percent of the direct cost. Right. So, okay, and of course, um, and Minister Wilkinson, I, I spoke with him last week, and um, just prior right. to leaving for London, he, he he had a meeting with a Japanese delegation, of course. Right. Yeah. Okay, so um, things seem to be sort of um, set at an interesting point of time. Um, you, you've got obviously some big challenges ahead of you, but perhaps even bigger opportunities. What are going to be some of the sort of milestones potentially for gigametals over the next six to 12 months? Well, first of all, money. I mean, again, we're not going to launch, and, and, and timing's important to us. So I, I, I am looking for this $50 million. It's just, it's, it's, you know, put it crossly, it's a deal time, baby. I mean, here's, here's the PFS, you know, study it. Um, you know, get your best engineers on it and decide whether you believe it or not. And then, um, you know, we put it this way. At the very latest, I'd like to have uh, money uh, by February of next year. Ideally, I'd like to know the money's coming in by the end of this year. And we're talking to a lot of people, so I don't know if we'll succeed or not, but what I want to do is have the money by February the latest because I don't want to lose a year. I'm in a hurry. Um, the way this project works is, you know, in BC and in, in, in northern BC, once you've got a mine built, you can operate year round. And in fact, um, the lessons of northern BC is that open pit mines are more efficiently run during the winter because you're not dealing with mud. Um, but at the exploration and development sense uh, stage, the the season is basically from you know early June to maybe mid October, um, and so you've got to get all the work you need to get done at the site within that window, which means you have to start organizing it before that window opens. You have to you know, line up your drillers, you have to line up all of your services and plan your program. And that's not something you're going to, you're not going to, I'm not going to make a commitment to a driller if I don't have the money or know that the money is coming. So that's why I'm in a hurry. I, I don't want to lose a year on this project. Okay, well, hopefully we'll be able to have another conversation towards the end of the year about uh, celebrating your, your fundraise. Giga Metals yep. trades on the TSXB under GIGA. Mark Jarvis, Chair and CEO, and Lyle Tritton, Manager of Development. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank, thank you very much, Paul. Yeah. And that's all from me, Paul Harris. Stay tuned for more from Mining Stock Daily. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.